and welcome to the DC Debrief for Friday, November 17th, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolnes, and coming up, the nation's capital holds one of the largest rallies in support of Israel in America's history. Congress averts a government shutdown, possible movement on Senator Tuberville's military holds, and on this week's Deep Dive, China's Center Director for the Hudson Institute, Miles Yu, talks to us about President Biden's meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping, all coming up on this week's edition of the DC Debrief. But just a reminder to tell a friend or a family member about the DC Debrief and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or however it is you ingest your podcast. This is your weekly look back at the big stories from Washington, D.C. that week, and we let you decide how to interpret all of the information we're going to throw your way here every week at the D.C. Debrief. And with that in mind, let's get to the debrief for this week. March for Israel on Wednesday, a massive show of support here in the nation's capital for Israel, with some estimates putting the crowd at over 200,000 people. It was a rally that some are calling the largest pro-Israel rally in American history. CBN was there. You may have watched our live coverage on YouTube. And our own Hillary Powell has more on the bipartisan show of support for Israel this week. With a message in song to stamp out hate. Organizers say an estimated 290,000 people spoke with their feet, gathering on the National Mall to stand with Israel, condemn anti-Semitism, and call for the safe return of the remaining nearly 240 hostages abducted by Hamas on October 7th. Family members fought back tears to tell their story. My family is being held hostage by terrorists. I am here with you because I love my family, and I promised I would scream to the ends of the earth for them. The March for Israel saw bipartisan endorsement of one of America's closest allies as criticism has intensified over Israel's offensive in Gaza, set off by the Hamas incursion. Overlooking a mass of Israeli and U.S. flags, top congressional leaders, including Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Democratic Leader Hakeem Jeffries, joined hands with Republicans House Speaker Mike Johnson and Iowa Senator Joni Ernst. There are few issues in Washington that could so easily bring together leaders of both parties in both chambers, but the survival of the state of Israel and her people unites us together. Congress will continue to support in a bipartisan way, the state of Israel and Israel's unequivocal right to exist. Crowd members draped in the Israeli flag stood side by side with Christians as well. Gathered before me on this mall are people of all faiths, beliefs, identities and backgrounds. You are united by your abhorrence of Jew hatred and your recognition of its lethal nature. I am here to deliver a singular message. Israel, you are not alone. Students from across the country showed up in strong numbers, including young voices, saying they are concerned for others. Because we need to stand with our country in the times of need they're in. One student group came from Miami to show support for Israel. High school senior Shoshana Wagoda says it has real personal impact as she prepares to head to college. We're Jewish and we love Israel and it's our home. And that's the only place that we'll, we can feel really safe with all the anti-Semitism in the world. We oppose the state of Israel because we are Jews. 
A contingent of Jewish counter-protesters peacefully spoke out against Israel and Zionism. One father brought his family to the march and says it's sobering for his children to be called to action so young. Yeah, we have kids who are in Jewish day school and they're surrounded by people who are in mourning right now. Uh, and it's sad that they have to learn it at this age, but this is the world we live in, unfortunately. Peace has been the cornerstone of this event for the organizers. And D.C. Mayor Muriel Browser says the presence of the National Guard has further helped to ensure that. In Washington, Hillary Powell, CBN News. The rally was held as Israeli Defense Forces launched an operation into the Al-Shifa Hospital in an attempt to root out Hamas leadership who is using the hospital as a cover for its military operations. CBN's George Thomas on the humanitarian crisis there and Israel's desire to rescue the hostages held in the tunnels underneath. Dr. Nasser Bulbal, head of the NICU at Al-Shifa, Gaza's largest hospital, says they are on the verge of running out of critical supplies to keep some of their most vulnerable patients alive. We do not know what to do as we are facing a severe shortage of medical supplies, ventilators and essential life-saving medicines. While Gazans continue to face severe shortages deep beneath Al-Shifa Hospital, Israel says Hamas has stored up ample food, water, fuel and other critical supplies, including weapons, to carry out its war against the Jewish state. Hamas terrorists operate inside and under Shifa Hospital and other hospitals in Gaza with network of terror tunnels. The IDF releasing this animated video claiming that the terror group operates its command and control headquarters from several underground complexes beneath Al-Shifa. Hamas also has an entrance to those terror tunnels from inside the hospital wards, meaning from different places of the hospital you can go into an underground tunnel that will provide you shelter. The Islamist militant group which controls the Gaza Strip has been using human shields in conflicts with Israel since 2007. I know what it feels like to be used as a human shield. Back in 2014, during Israel's war with Hamas, I was in Gaza City, and almost every night I could see Hamas fighters assemble, then fire off their rockets from the basement of my hotel. Hamas knew without a shadow of a doubt that the Israelis would not target the hotel because it was filled with foreign journalists. A captured Hamas fighter who infiltrated Israel on October 7th, telling interrogators that the terror group uses hospitals like Al-Shifa to hide their fighters and weapons because such places are often teeming with civilians. I told you, Shifa is a safe place. It will not be struck. To them, it is safe. And that is what we know. And it's just not hospitals. Hamas often uses structures closest to schools, mosques and even churches from which they can hide weapons, fighters and launch rockets. On October 20th, a prominent Greek Orthodox church in Gaza City sustained heavy damage when Israel hit the headquarters of a Hamas commander. The IDF releasing this video of the strike to CBN News telling us that the terrorist home was 50 meters from the church. The ensuing explosion destroying a part of the church and reportedly killing 18 Palestinian Christians. Hamas not only endangers the lives of Israelis, civilians, but also exploit innocent Gazan civilians as human shield. The IDF will continue making efforts 
to minimize harm to civilians' population and will continue to act in accordance with international law. George Thomas, CBN News, along the Israel-Gaza border. Here in the U.S., police in Washington had to use force against protesters who were calling for a ceasefire outside the DNC headquarters on Wednesday night. At least six officers were injured. One person was arrested, and Hakeem Jeffries and some other top Democratic leadership were inside the building when the protest was going on. The American public is split on Israel's war with Hamas. 38% now say that Israel has gone too far in their military operations in Gaza. That's up 12 points from just after the attacks, when 26% said Israel was going too far. This is all according to a new NPR-PBS Marist poll. And while 61% of all Americans are still more likely to sympathize with Israelis, Democrats are split. 45% say they have greater support for the Israelis. 45% say they have greater support for the Palestinians. Government shutdown averted. President Biden here on Friday signed the continuing resolution that was passed by the House and the Senate this week to avoid the government shutdown that would have taken place tonight at midnight had the two chambers of Congress not come to an agreement. The House of Representatives once again agreeing to a deal with House Democrats. This is with Speaker Mike Johnson's multi-tiered continuing resolution that would prevent the government shutdown from taking place. And with passage in the Senate and President Biden's signature, much of the government will now be funded through mid-January and the rest through early February. And look, there are major headaches and hurdles still to come especially early next year after the holidays when it comes to the budget. But there will be no headaches during the holidays or leading up to the holidays. Speaker Johnson says this is a win for conservatives. We have broken the fever. We are not going to have a massive omnibus spending bill right before Christmas. That is a gift to the American people. I'm one of the arch conservatives, okay? And I want to cut spending right now, and I would like to put policy writers on this. But when you have a three-vote majority, as we do right now, we don't have the votes to be able to advance that right now. The deal Speaker Johnson came up with and made with Democrats was almost exactly the same as the one former Speaker Kevin McCarthy made with Democrats, a deal that ultimately cost him his gavel. Republican and Freedom Caucus member Chip Roy was among a number of conservative Republicans who voted against the deal, mostly because this CR maintained current spending levels. One thing, I want my Republican colleagues to give me one thing, one, that I can go campaign on and say we did. I've heard nothing but excuses for the 20 years that I've either been a staffer in this town, back in Texas watching it closely, or now back as a member. Democrat Congressman Jason Moskowitz wonders if Speaker Johnson is in danger of the same fate as Speaker McCarthy was when McCarthy cut a deal with the Democrats. Because that's what happened to Speaker McCarthy. We heard from Republicans, oh, it's not personal, it's not personal with McCarthy. It was about the issue. Okay, well then I, uh, then we should see a motion to vacate Speaker Johnson uh, from my Republican colleagues. The bill passed the Senate 87 to 11, which sent the bill to the president's desk for his signature. House domestic threats hearing. As threats across the homeland grow with the war in Gaza raging, the heads of two of the nation's top domestic law enforcement agencies, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and FBI Director Christopher Wray, both testified that the threat of attacks here in the homeland has increased. CBN's Capitol Hill correspondent Matt Galka has more. In a year where the terrorism threat was already elevated, the ongoing war in the Middle East has raised the threat 
of an attack against Americans in the United States to a whole nother level. A stark warning from FBI Director Christopher Wray, who also confirmed multiple investigations are underway nationwide into individuals who may have connections to Hamas. Our most immediate concern is that individuals or small groups will draw twisted inspiration from the events in the Middle East to carry out attacks here at home. That concern quickly shifted the conversation to the southern border because nearly 200 people on the terror watch list have been encountered there. 200 is alarming to me. Does that give you concern? Uh, certainly, I, the numbers give us concern. Uh, I think it's important, though, in some ways, um, to realize that it's, numbers alone don't even really tell the problem. And we've all seen how much damage just a small number uh, of foreign terrorists could cause. I mean, it, sometimes people, as crazy as it sounds, tend to forget that it was 19 people who killed 3,000 people. That was the next point I was going to make. It only took 19 to create 9-11. And while all of this does sound indeed very scary, one point Ray did stress to the American people is, is that they should continue to live their lives, but there should also be a heightened awareness. Officials also stressed that there's no verified credible threat to the country right now. Guys. Santos report. The House Ethics Committee released its long-anticipated report into charges of corruption against pariah Republican Congressman George Santos. Now, the report does not make a recommendation on whether to expel or to censure Congressman Santos, but it does make it quite clear that they believe Santos is in violation of House ethics rules and federal crimes. The report said there is substantial evidence to show that Santos, quote, knowingly caused his campaign committee to file false or incomplete reports with the Federal Election Commission, used campaign funds for personal purposes, and engaged in knowing and willful violations of the Ethics and Government Act as it relates to his financial disclosure statements filed with the House. Santos is already facing 23 federal criminal counts. As a result, Santos has announced he will not seek re-election in 2024, but that will not stop efforts to have him kicked out of Congress now. Santos has survived two previous attempts to expel him from Congress, and if he is expelled, it would shrink an already narrow Republican majority one vote fewer. But many members were waiting for this report to come out before potentially changing their vote. A third vote is expected at some point after the holidays. Inflation data. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reported on Tuesday that inflation continues to slow in October. The Consumer Price Index basically unchanged since in less uh, was basically unchanged in October. It was just up four hundredths of a percent month over month and three point two percent year over year. That's a little bit below economists' expectations. Core inflation which excludes volatile energy and food prices, was down 0.2% month over month and 4% annually. That is the lowest annual figure since September of 2021. Now, the question is, will this lead the Federal Reserve to continue its hold on rate hikes in an, in an attempt to get that inflation rate down closer to 2%? But uh, the news on the CPI this week allowed the, the Dow, the NASDAQ, S&P to have their best day since April. 
SCOTUS Code of Conduct. The nine justices on the Supreme Court released a code of conduct on Monday in light of some renewed scrutiny and some published reports over ethics questions. The 14-page document lays out what could be grounds for disqualification from hearing a case. We're talking about personal bias or prejudice as it relates to the people involved or the facts in the case, involvement with the case at a previous stage in the legal process, or if one of the justices could have a financial stake in the outcome of the case. The justices wrote, quote, for the most part, these rules and principles are not new, but said that the absence of a code, however, has led in recent years to the misunderstanding that the justices of this court, unlike all other jurists in the country, regard themselves as unrestricted by any ethics rules. Now, Senator D uh, Dick Durbin, who's a Democrat and chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, is glad to see that the justices have put out this code of conduct, but he notes that the code does not include an enforcement mechanism for the standards that they're laying out. And he says it still may be up to Congress to put into place an enforcement mechanism in case any of these self-imposed ethical standards are violated. Republicans maintain that much of the reporting that has been out there, specifically against conservative justices Alito and Clarence Thomas, are essentially made up, over-exaggerated, and that they did nothing wrong um, when it comes to perhaps accepting some donations or going on travel and trips with a couple of conservative donors. But Democrats, of course, pushing back at that and saying that this code of ethics needs to be announced and it needs to have some kind of enforcement mechanism in order for justices to take it seriously. Tuberville talks to CBN. Senators appear to be moving closer to changing Senate rules that would allow them to get around the military holds that Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville has put on promotions. He continues to insist he will not allow the promotions to go through until the Pentagon changes their policy that's, that pays for service members to go out of state to have an abortion. CBN's Matt Galka back again here on the podcast because he sat down with Senator Tuberville this week to talk about it. It punishes those brave service members who, who didn't develop the policy and can't change it. We stand for life, but we also stand for other innocents, the innocent men and women who are serving in uniform today, continue to serve without advancement in their career fields while their families are hanging in the balance. Senate Republicans went late into the night asking their fellow Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville to end his blockade on military promotions. The senator's objections have held up some 300 or so typically routine military promotions in the chamber. CBN spoke to Senator Tuberville this week about his ongoing effort. I hate I have to hold these people kind of a hostage, but the American people deserve better than this. They deserve an administration that's going to listen and go by the Constitution. The Alabama Republican has blocked the promotions for nine months, maintaining it's his only tool to push the Pentagon to change its policy of paying travel expenses for service members who cross state lines to get an abortion. Some of his fellow Republicans say he's taking the wrong approach. The policy is wrong, but holding these officers who had nothing to do, this, do with this is wrong. They deserve better. Are you losing your own party on this? No, not, not losing your own party. I mean, we got a strong party. We got some people that look at this situation different. They think they would hope that we would move on with this to give 
give the 300 people a, a promotion. You got to remember, we're talking about a two million person military and 300 people. Uh, I keep hearing about how readiness. Okay, y'all tell me how I'm hurting readiness. Uh, the crickets, they can't tell you. The Senate Rules Committee voted this week along party lines for a rule change to go around Tuberville's blockade. I just believe this is one other example where we've got to get our act together, do the right thing. Tuberville says he has the backing of some military personnel around the country and will continue to object until that rule comes to the floor. Listen, again, I'm a, I'm, I'm a team player and I know we need a strong military but we have to stand up in this country for what's right. And if the resolution is brought to the floor, it would need 60 votes in order for the promotions to go through. 2024 slog to the White House continues. Republican Senator Tim Scott surprised everyone, including members of his own campaign this week, when he announced that he was dropping out of the presidential race, joining Mike Pence now as the second mainstream Republican to do so. Pence and Scott both tried to run campaigns fueled by positive messages of conservatism that simply does not appear to be resonating with GOP primary voters here in this election cycle. Now, we got word this week a true wild card could be close to throwing his hat into the ring. He's at least considering it. And that's Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who announced last week he would not seek re-election next year. He's also now floating the possibility of running for president as a third-party candidate. Are you considering running for president? I will do anything I can to help my country. Is that a yes? And you're saying, does that mean you would consider it? Absolutely. Every American should consider. If they're in a position to help save the country, I think we're on the wrong course. So I will do everything possible. Also, a Michigan court ruled on Tuesday that former President Donald Trump can remain on the primary ballot in that state, but it did leave open the possibility of a legal challenge over his ballot eligibility in the general election. Judge James Redford argued in his decision uh, that it should be up to Congress whether Trump should be disqualified under the insurrection clause in the 14th Amendment, but said right now his eligibility to remain on the primary ballot uh, should should continue on as is uh, is currently stated. Uh, Donald Trump, meanwhile, coming under heavy criticism for some comments that he made over the weekend on Veterans Day. Pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country that lie and steal and cheat on elections. The threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within. President Biden and other anti-Trump liberals, Democrats, and some on the Republican side, such as Mitt Romney and Chris Christie, said those comments harken back to remarks made by fascist leaders of the past. Biden saying, quote, that language you heard goes back to Nazi Germany in the 1930s, and it's not the first time. He continues, Trump also recently talked about blood of America has been poisoned. The blood of America has been poisoned, again, echoes the same phrases used in Nazi Germany. Nazi officials did use propaganda to dehumanize Jews and other persecuted enemies as disease-riddle vermin back in the 1930s, also calling them degenerates and racially inferior. That's according to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. We've also seen in multiple different cases over the last few years 
Hutus massacred Tutsis that they labeled cockroaches during the Rwandan genocide of the 1990s. That's according to Human Rights Watch. RNC chair Ronna McDaniel was asked about Trump's comments, but she declined to address them in multiple Sunday show appearances. Moving forward here on the podcast, as we get closer to the Iowa caucus and New Hampshire primaries in January, we're going to be paying closer attention to what the like, what the likely Republican nominee is saying on social media and at his campaign events, good, bad, indifferent, or otherwise. We'll just we will bring you what the likely Republican nominee for president has been saying and what others are saying about what he has been saying. All right, everybody, that is our debrief. Now let's get into our deep dive for this week. Well, we talked about it a little bit here earlier in the podcast, uh, but we want to dive a little bit deeper into President Biden's meeting with President Xi uh, in San Francisco this weekend. And joining me to talk a little bit more about that is China Center Director for the Hudson Institute, Miles Yu. Miles, thank you for coming on the DC Debrief. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And I know expectations going into this meeting were not very high, but based on the tone and the language from the two sides following the meeting, it seemed from my untrained eyes and ears that things went pretty well, all things considered, that maybe there was some movement on a few important issues. At first blush, what is your first impression of the meeting between Presidents Biden and Xi? You know, the optics looks pretty good. Uh, There's no major disagreement. Uh, so, uh, but that's not necessarily mean they all uh, have reached some kind of have some common ground because mm-hmm. uh, if you if you uh, pay attention to the details, you'll realize uh, they're really I mean they have uh, no agreement on fundamental things. First of all, uh, the list uh, of the issues uh, that were published before the meeting uh, was very long, and very few of them actually have have any tangible resolutions. There was only two minor ones came up. One is the military-to-military hotline. In other words, they both agreed to uh, launch a global counter-narcotics campaign. I mean, Mm -hmm. that doesn't even mention uh, fentanyl, which was uh, really the focus of this administration. So uh, uh, the reason is that uh, I think both sides have given up convincing each other. And then we just come here to sit down to create the optics and there is even no joint statement. Each side have diff, uh, two uh, statements at the end of the, uh, the meeting, and they were very different. So, how do you take that? The fact that there was no joint statement does it does that make does that make it seem to you as if you know there was there was less agreed upon, or that the that the messages that both took out of this are very different? Well, basically, both sides have a fundamentally different approach to all the issues. For example. United States basically has uh, uh, has given China the red lines uh, last year in Bali, Indonesia, uh, on two things. One is uh, United States would definitely punish China if China provided lethal assistance to Russia's war effort in Ukraine. Number two, United States will get involved militarily if China tries to uh, invade Taiwan. So those things, uh, China uh, basically know uh, they got the message, but they did not necessarily agree uh, to it. So those issues are is much more fundamental than just this transactional business-like uh, agreement, signing agreement and agreement on. On the other hand, even if you talk, think about the the military hotline, it does not guarantee that Chinese side will actually pick up the phone in a time of crisis. Yeah. So in the past. Uh, 
we have the uh, hotlines for decades. China never picked up the phone in a time of crisis. This happened in 2001, the EP3 plane crash incident. And also a little earlier in 1999, when the Chinese embassy in Belgrade was accidentally bombed. And uh, there was a lot of uh, leadership uh, uh, phone calls from Washington, D.C. None of them were picked up by the Chinese. So they've got to actually use these tools that they're putting in place in order for them to be useful, which makes makes a lot of sense. But I, I thought the, the things that President Xi said while he was there, he, he talked about the fact that, you know, they, they can't allow competition to allow them allow to become too adversarial, that these two countries need each other. I think, I think he referred to it as the most important dual country relationship uh, in, in the world, the United States. It sounded as if both sides understood that neither one was going anywhere and that it was best for everyone concerned, both the two countries involved in the world, that they find a way to coexist and for each to thrive without necessarily it coming at the other's expense. And I don't know that I'd heard that kind of language, especially given given all the events that led up to this summit with the Chinese spy balloon, Nancy Pelosi's trip over to Taiwan, uh, some of the military interactions that they've had in the skies that have, are pretty dangerous from what, for what Chinese planes flank too closely to American planes. The, the rhetoric was definitely tamped down here over the course of these uh, last couple of days. Would you agree? Well, let me put it this way. Uh, for those of us who studied China for all those years, <laughs> you have to know how to read the Chinese language. When okay. China tried to hype this uh, important importance of U.S.-China relationship, yes, it's very important. But the reason why they say that is because China look at itself, uh, look at the United States as the source of all the world's problems, mm -hmm. instabilities. Uh, so China tries to create a narrative, which is a force and kind of insidious, actually, uh, to say, you know what, the only thing that matters in the world is the uh, United States and China. The reality is different. Why they do that? It's because the issue is not really about China versus the United States. The issue is really about China versus the rest of the world. China has uh, so many uh, uh, adversaries China has been bullying everybody in the, in the neighborhood, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Philippines, Vietnam, India. So all these issues, China tried to sort of avoid talking about it. And they've, they've, they artificially hype the importance, significance of the U.S.-China relationship. So I think, you know, people in the know in Washington uh, uh, actually uh, figured this out already. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why from the beginning, the Biden administration uh, basically wanted to treat this meeting as one of the many on the sidelines of the APEC conference. Xi Jinping didn't want to do that. He wanted to have this uh, this meeting to be so important, uh, actually to be held ahead of the APEC conference. And so that's why uh, uh, and the, the world media basically you know, were sucked in, you know, mm -hmm. for instance, trap in my view. So um, I don't think that uh, uh, it's, um, uh, it's really, really, uh, and also, for example, Xi Jinping says something else. He said, well, the world is big enough for two countries to, co to coexist. Yeah. Sounds very good, soothing, but this is typical communist propaganda. Hmm. When China, when communists talk about peace, that means they're in a strategic disadvantage. They want to, to stop. Uh, so what China's uh, coexistence really means is that when, when China is bullying the countries in hmm. South China Sea and Taiwan Strait on a weekly, even daily basis, that United States should just uh, stay away, hands yeah. off, do not criticize. That's what it means when, when they mean coexistence.
Yeah, that's their that's their idea of peace is what you're saying. And that that I understand that makes sense. And China came into this summit weaker than they were uh, weaker than they've been in the last years. They're, they're facing a number of headwinds, specifically economically, aren't they? Absolutely. China's economy actually uh, is uh, pretty dangerous, close to, to a meltdown. That's because uh, uh, it's, it's not as much uh, caused by the normal market up and down uh, because China fundamentally is not a market economy. So what China is facing right now is the, uh, 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 the major pillars of Chinese economy, consumer consumption, Export, import, and investment—they're all down dramatically. So what do I mean? So it's not caused by the market mechanism, rather by something systemic and structural. Because uh, uh, China built a lot of uh, infrastructure, buildings, railways, and the dams, but very few of them actually uh, uh, have any sort of economic viability. They build our railways, but it, the ridership is very low, so they kind of recover uh, the, the 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 debt. That's the nature of Chinese development model, the infrastructure model uh, that Chinese uh, wants to wants to export to the rest of the world. That's what the BR, BRI is all about, Belt and Road Initiative. Hmm. So it also, it, sorry, the United States was also uh, imploring China to be more of a leader on the world stage by not getting involved in um, aiding Russia in their invasion of Ukraine and also uh, by trying to get Iran to not escalate the tensions, escalate the war between Israel and Hamas in, in Gaza. Do you see any way in which China can be, can, can at least, if they're not helping the situation, at least not add fuel to the fire in those two different conflicts? That's right. China is uh, sort of in a passive aggressive mode right now, because on the one hand, they really, really don't like the United States. It's just uh, 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 the, our predominant influence in the world. On the other hand, they also uh, get the message that they, we're going to punish them if they don't comply with Americans' uh, uh, warnings uh, not to give uh, military aid to Russia and not to basically support Iran as much as China wanted to. That's because China's economy as a uh, as uh, threatening, formidable to the rest of the world, uh, Chinese economy is so much more interconnected with the international free trading system. So their reliance on the Western technology, on Western investment, is very, very big. Without which, Chinese economy would be in trouble. That's why China, on one hand, really uh, geopolitically doesn't like the United States, but they have very little choice uh, because the cost imposed on China. If China violate this kind of you know U.S. warnings will be prohibitive. Uh, imagine if China invaded Taiwan. We told them uh, uh, if you do that, uh, you're going to have a severe financial, economic, and technological um, uh, sanctions. So that's why that's something China cannot afford. So that's the only way you can force China to behave. Yeah, these uh, these economic sanctions leveling against them. And I was going to finish up with you about Taiwan. Um, and it sounds as though the president is continuing to say we believe in in the one China solution that they're, you know, they're they're not going to come out and say Taiwan is its own independent nation, but certainly not going to also change their their stance towards Taiwan uh, being uh, free and independent uh, of China. How much law? I mean, I guess you're what you're saying is these economic these threats of economic sanctions. Do you think that's enough to keep the status quo with regard to Taiwan for the foreseeable future yeah i think so and taiwan right now is drifting away from the communist uh, china not because of uh, 
Taiwan wants to become independent, just uh, <clears throat> it's a natural evolution. Taiwan is a full-blown democracy with a lot of freedoms that China uh, does not have. So uh, what the president says is not that uh, we we agree Taiwan is part of China. We say we have, we have one China policy. That is, we recognize uh, mainland China. Uh, uh, no, it's, it's a political regime. But for Taiwan, we have two other very important conditions. Number one, United States has steadfastly objected to any use of force to change the status quo. That's a, that's mm. a long time policy. Yeah. Uh, that's the reason. That's the legal reason for President since Jimmy Carter to uh, to declare Americans resolve to get in, involved militarily. If China invades Taiwan, U.S. will get in to stop that. Number two uh, is that uh, uh, we. Uh, have told the Chinese and Chinese have agreed uh, decades ago that any political settlement about Taiwan's future must be agreed to by both sides of the of, the, of Taiwan Strait. Mm. That means, you know, whatever you decide, Taiwanese voters have to really vote for it. Otherwise, it will be illegitimate. Those were two very important uh, component part of uh, America's one China policy. So this is a situation with China, obviously America's uh, number one adversary at the moment. And although it seems as though everybody was saying nice things uh, this uh, this week in, in San Francisco, there is still uh, still a lot to be uh, keeping an eye on and, and keeping aware of. Um, Miles, you thank you so much for your time. China Center Director for the Hudson Institute. We appreciate your time here on the DCD Brief. Thank you for having me. And now it's time for the closer, and we will finish out the week with some childish behavior on Capitol Hill. As you know, I usually don't offer opinions or commentary on this podcast, but I do have to say something about what we saw in Capitol Hill this week. On Wednesday, specifically, there were three incidents that were flat-out embarrassing for all involved and beneath the dignity of the offices that they hold. In a House hearing... Democrat Moskowitz, we mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, confronted Republican James Comer over a $200,000 loan he allegedly gave his brother that Moskowitz believes was improper. He was calling out Comer on Comer's claims of impropriety by President Biden in the Hunter Biden probe and said that Comer was being a hypocrite. The discussion devolved into name calling. Also that day, as Republican Congressman Tim Burchett was speaking with a reporter, he claims that former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy elbowed him in the kidneys as McCarthy was walking behind him. Burchett chased down McCarthy and confronted him about it. Afterwards, Burchett described what happened. I got elbowed in the back and it kind of caught me off guard because it was a clean shot to the kidneys. And I turned back and there was there was Kevin. And um, and I, I for a minute, I was kind of what the heck just happened? And then I, um, you know, I, I chased after him. Of course, he's a, as I've stated many times, he's a, he's a bully with seventeen million dollars in a security detail. You know, he's the type of guy that, when you're a kid, would throw a rock over the fence and run home and hide behind his mama's skirt. And he just, you know, he, he, uh, from behind that kind of stuff. It, you know, that's not the way we handle things in East Tennessee. And McCarthy, of course, responded. A reporter was interviewing Burchard or something. I guess our shoulders did, because Bertrand runs up to me after. I didn't know what he was talking about. So the reporter's asking me. I did not 
run and hit the guy. I did not kidney punch him. I did not shoot anything like that. He didn't shot him. No. And finally, on Wednesday, you had Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma, a former MMA fighter, openly challenging International Brotherhood of Teamsters President Sean O'Brien during a hearing into a fistfight right there in the middle of the Senate hearing after the two men had exchanged threats against each other on social media in the days and weeks before that. Senator Bernie Sanders had to try and settle the situation down. Quick, the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me. Any place, any time, cowboy. Sir, this is a time, this is a place. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, hold, stop it. Is that your solution every poll? No, no, sit down. Sit down. Okay. You know, you're a United States senator. Sit down. Oh, okay, okay. Sit down, please. All right. Can I respond? Mr. Hold Finn. it. Hold it. If Hold we can, no, I have the mic. Said. I'm sorry. This is Hold what it. he said. You'll have your time. Okay. Can I respond? Oh, no, you can't. <laughs> this is a hearing. And God knows the American people have enough of contempt. But Congress, let's not I don't make like it worse. Thugs and you, you have, and you have and I don't like you because you Hold just it. described yourself. Hold it. Now, there's no denying and no doubt that everyone in Congress is pretty stressed up and, and tired and probably Republicans more than Democrats, given the three week speakership battle. The fact they've all been there 10 weeks working long, long hours without much of a break. And it's already a very contentious atmosphere up there to begin with. That being said, this all sounds a lot like middle school and high school, does it not? Oftentimes, Congress is a reflection on us. They are our elected representatives, and oftentimes our representatives mirror and reflect our attitudes, especially when you're in the House and you're specifically representing certain constituents. Very often, the member of Congress is reflective of those constituents. And right now, the country is as angry as it's been in decades, maybe going back to the Civil War, our anger is fed day by day also from what we see on TV, what we hear on talk radio. And basically on social media, what you get is a constant demonization of people to other people that they disagree with. We've lost the, dis we've lost the ability to disagree with someone without making it personal, without getting angry, and without casting aspersions on folks. You see it on social media every day. If someone disagrees with you on an issue, they're a bad person. And on social media, anyone can launch a campaign to boycott you, to cancel you, to ostracize you if you hold a differing opinion from them. In politics, we all know that you raise more money by scaring people and making them angry rather than trying to fill them with hope and optimism. Certainly, Senator Tim Scott and Vice President Mike Pence were flawed presidential candidates, but it's not a coincidence that their candidacies based on optimism failed in this current climate. I think perhaps Republican Congresswoman Victoria, Victoria Sparts put it best this week. I wish we would spend as much energy at governing how we do it fighting. I mean, healthy conversations are good, but, you know, just do go personal. It's probably not necessary, and it's really a waste of energy where we have real problems to deal with. Hopefully, the holiday break will help reset the mood and the tensions that have been brewing in a contentious 2023 on Capitol Hill. And maybe, just maybe, we can all do our part as citizens to help bring down the temperature in the country in the hopes our representatives will take note and follow suit. 
right, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief, everyone. Wishing you all a blessed Thanksgiving next week. Again, please remember to subscribe to the podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else it is you get your podcast. And thank you all for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time right here on the DC Debrief. Thank you.